let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll open God's word together. Father, thank you so much for the joy that we have in Christ. Lord, these songs that we sing, not just enjoyable, they have nice sound to them and nice rhythm, but the reality is we are speaking of what we truly need, wisdom from you, and that you are the, the good giver of that wisdom. We thank you for it. We thank you for life and peace and hope. We thank you that you are the giver of good gifts. Help us to revel in your goodness as we open your word now and see the writer in Ecclesiastes leading us to, to a sense of joy and thanksgiving at what you have done. Thank you for being so kind to us and help us now as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes 5, but I just want to start with Psalm 97, begins with the words, the Lord reigns. The Lord is in control. The Lord rules. He is master. He is in charge. God rules over his creation. The question then is how do we respond to that? What is our, uh, what is our response in light of God's control, the ultimate authority of God? Is it fear? Is it submission? Psalmist puts it this way. Psalm 97.1 says, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Scripture's response to uh, calling on us uh, in response to God's authority, God's sovereignty, his control, is that it fill us with joy and gladness, that his creation respond back with great gratitude and thanksgiving that he is in control. He is in control when you lay your head down on the pillow at night and when you rise up in the morning. Question, of course, to all of that is, how do we respond to that? Do we believe that? Do we respond with joy? Are we thankful for that? Do we have that sense of gratitude? That kind of joy is what the teacher in Ecclesiastes is seeking to lead us to in this passage this morning that we're going to be in, in Ecclesiastes 5 and 6. It really is the heart of his message, and that may sound a little bit surprising, if you have been moving along in this study of Ecclesiastes and somebody said to you, well, in one word, what is Ecclesiastes about? You would probably say, hevel, yeah, vanity, right, futility. Joy would probably not be one of the first words to come to mind, but that is what he wants to show us this morning. Ecclesiastes, as we've seen, gives a pretty harsh dose of reality. It's often taking a very pessimistic view of life as this older, experienced man looks back at life, and it is God's word delivered through his reflections. He's experienced a tremendous amount of success in life, prosperity and wealth and riches. He has had a lot of the things that the world say is good to have, but he's now looking back in this book on his life with this deep level of disillusionment. The more that he reviews his life and all that he's accomplished and how great the resume has been, the more it seems like he has worked for things that ultimately are meaningless, that are, to use the Hebrew word, hebel, futile, that won't last. And we found him coming repeatedly to this sort of why bother, what's the point sort of conclusion as he's looked at life. If this is all there is, then what's the point? Author of Ecclesiastes is called the teacher or the preacher, and he's really showing us what he's learned about life and taking us through instance after instance of him sort of experimenting with life. We don't have his name 
uh, specifically given to us in the text, but all of the indications from the beginning are that this is Solomon who was king over Israel some thousand years before Christ. And Solomon had been given extraordinary wisdom by God. Uh, children sang about him this week during VBS and just this whole topic of wisdom. You can't talk about biblical wisdom without giving some acknowledgement to God's work in Solomon's life and blessing him with this incredible wisdom. And yet Ecclesiastes indicates that he squandered that wisdom on this, what he describes as under-the-sun approach to life. And for those of you who maybe have joined us a little later in the series, that's really one of the keys in this, this phrase, under-the-sun, that is his way of describing life separated from God. Everything is about the here and now. I'm not looking to eternity. I'm not looking to what's past this life. I'm not concerned about God. It's just what's here. What I see under the sun is what I live for and where my priorities are. And so Ecclesiastes is filled with the thoughts of a guy who is living for the moment, living for himself, living for the accumulation of riches and fame and personal honor, all the things that seemed to matter in life on earth, all the things that, that at least the world says are good to pursue and, and get for yourself. And suddenly, as we've seen, what really shakes him is this whole notion that if I do all this, it doesn't change the end as far as life under the sun, because life under the sun still ends in death. There's still a, a point when you can't extend the clock, you can't do any more, you can't accumulate any more, you come to the end of life under the sun and you will die. As he's already described it, the same way that poor and foolish people do, your body will be buried and returned to the dust just like the bodies of animals. And so we've come to, to meet this person in just a tremendous state of, of almost depression at points because he's looked at all of this life that has been so good on so many levels, good in quotes, I guess, and now it's like, well, what's the point? And he summed it all up with that word that we mentioned before that's used so frequently throughout this. The Hebrew word is hebel. We see it a lot. It's the word that's translated vanity that you see in Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity. And it really pictures something that's futile, fleeting, also translated in Hebrew as vapor or smoke. So something you can see, something that has some substance to it, but if you try to grab onto it, it's, it's gone. There's nothing left of it. As he reflects about life and all of the honors and the riches, he essentially comes to the conclusion that if life is only ever lived under the sun, if this is all there is, then essentially it's all hebel because I'm still going to die and I'm still going to be buried and all of that stuff won't matter. We will see more hebel today here in chapter 5 and most of chapter 6. There's hope, though, to be found in this passage. And I want to show you, and you have it in your notes there in the bulletin. You see the picture up there. This is just kind of to help you visualize this passage. This is not original with me. I've mentioned the book there that this comes from, and that writer in this book gets it from a couple of other biblical scholars who looked at this in the sense of this is Hebrew poetry, and we know that Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are all forms of Hebrew poetry. And they see in this section, and I think you'll see it as we go through, some very interesting parallelism. That's a form of, of Hebrew poetry that takes a structure that's called chiasm. What you see in this is parallels. And so at the beginning of the poem and the end of the poem, there are themes and words that are very similar. And then you move in a little bit from the beginning and a little from the end, and you find more themes and words that are parallel. 
And the idea that the writer's using in, in this sort of structure is to get you to look at the middle of the poem, because that's really where the heart is. That's where the lesson is that he wants you to see. And so it's sort of this pyramid that builds up to its main point and then builds down and uses this structure called chiasm. So there's your poetry lesson for the day. See if you can find a way to incorporate chiasm in conversation this week with somebody and, and impress them in some way. More importantly, though, here's, here's where the top of that goes. Here's sort of the climax and the peak that we're going to get to in this study, and that is there is no earthly substitute for the joy that God gives to his people. There is no earthly substitute. We're going to see that on either side of the pyramid, that there's all these attempts at finding joy and finding security and finding peace and satisfaction. And, and those things are on either side of the middle of this beautiful piece of, of scripture in this poem. The point, though, that he's taking us to is you can spend all this time and money and effort trying to find and obtain something for yourself that only God can give you. And he longs to give it to you, and he longs for you to be grateful for it. But understand, only God is the giver of this. So let's start chapter 5, verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. You know what it's like when you eat you know, some high-calorie junk food? And, you know, you have the bag of chips, and it's really good, but it's not necessarily very filling. It doesn't leave you for a long time after that sort of satiated. It probably leaves you feeling guilty after you've gone through the bag, but it doesn't necessarily leave you with a long-term sense of satisfaction because it just doesn't fill you up. In a sense, that's what he's describing here. There's a lot of consumption. There is no satisfaction, though, that goes with it. Starts off, and verses 8 and 9 are sort of introductory to this. Verse 8, it's about these guys who are playing the system for their own gain. This is a, a picture of a corrupt government where one is looking out for the other. They are taking advantage of people. It's sort of high-level corruption in order to get rich, and all of the officials are watching each other's backs. They oppress people. They, they, they break the law. They take advantage of those who lack power. And they're all sort of in on the game, and so no one really gets caught. And that's why he describes it as, you see this one who oppresses, and don't be amazed, because this official's watched by another official and another official. So they're all in on the game, and they're all oppressing in order to try to accumulate more riches. There's sort of a side note in verse 9, which is sort of an interesting comment that he makes here. What he's really saying in verse 9, but, but there is, this is gain for a land, a king committed to cultivated fields, it is sort of just a, a brief counterbalance to this corrupt government perspective in that what he's saying here is there is, though, value in a king. It's better to have a government, even one that is littered with corruption at various points, it's better to have some level of order than the chaos that erupts if there is no king at all. At least the land should be thankful that the king is concerned with protecting it so the farmers can do their work and crops can grow. 
There may be corruption. There may be officials doing things they shouldn't do. But strictly on a, on a level of contentedness, we have to at least rest in the fact, he's saying here, that at least there's somebody who's sort of maintaining some level of order, and that's worth being thankful for. The Bible's solution to corrupt governments is not political. Uh, campaigns and elections are okay, and they're all vehicles that, that, that God may use in order to bring about his leader, but what actually saves and changes people and ends corruption and oppression is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we shouldn't expect necessarily a whole lot more. And that's kind of his attitude here when he says, don't be amazed at this. We shouldn't expect much more because no party platform of any kind is going to save creation. It will only come through Jesus Christ. So he's kind of giving us a little bit of a anger at unethical officials and yet a sense of this is not to be a surprise. This is to be thoroughly expected. Don't be shocked. And also it's still good to have someone in control. The overarching lesson, though, that he's beginning to launch into here, and it's more so in verses 10 through 12, is you can go after these riches any way you want. In this case, government officials through bribery and other means. You can pursue and pursue and, and play the system all you want, but material riches fail to give man an advantage. If he's going to live life under the sun and look for satisfaction under the sun, all the material riches in the world do not give him any kind of advantage. And that's the point here in the, the remainder of these verses. The mentality that if I just had more, this guy, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. It's just this sort of endless cycle of if I just had this, but now I need that. And, and, and he continues this pursuit and striving all for the love of money, to which the teacher says, if that's your ambition, if you think that under the sun you can get some advantage in life in terms of finding satisfaction just by getting stuff, you can forget it because it'll never fully satisfy you in any way. It'll never meet the needs in your soul. It will never give you a lasting kind of joy. It's again like that high calorie snack that might taste good for a little time, but doesn't actually build any substance to your being. It doesn't really give you anything lasting. If your approach to life you know, is the bumper sticker of he who has the most toys wins, the writer in Ecclesiastes is saying, no, actually you've already lost. Because there is no joy in that. You'll never be satisfied. And in fact, he says there are distinct disadvantages to this approach. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them, is essentially saying the more stuff you get, the more you have to hire people to take care of that stuff. And so essentially the more mouths you're feeding because you're paying more bills to take care of more stuff. In that culture, it would have been in terms of servants. The more servants you have to have, the more you have to feed. And so he's saying, okay, yeah, you got more stuff, but you've also got more mouths to feed in the process. And then he kind of states the obvious in verse 11 when he says, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? The idea is you get to a point where you've got so much stuff that you can't use all this stuff at the same time, and at some point it's just there as sort of, you know, eye candy. It's just there to be seen. You know, you look at it because you, you don't have time to enjoy it all. The stuff's always being maintained. It's just this, uh, I can look at it, and that's about all that there's really time for. And then that last disadvantage of, of this guy in verse 12, sweet is the sleep of the laborer, the guy who's working for far less than the one who owns all this stuff, but sweet is his sleep, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The laborer sleeps because he's worked hard, and he's at the end of the day, and he's satisfied with his job, and he has enough to, to pay his bills and to eat and drink, and, and that's it. 
And the rich guy is still consumed with, I have this, but I want this. The guy next door has this. And so there's this ongoing agitation by which he has a harder time sleeping than the laborer does. All of this, the writer in Ecclesiastes is saying, look, if, if you think this is the approach, here's all what's wrong with it, just purely from a wisdom level. The maintenance and the time and the energy, you're never going to find this satisfaction. That's the beginning of this section. Jump down now. Remember the pyramid we're using. Jump down to the very end in chapter 6, verse 7, and, and look as you do at some of the similarities in terms of the wording that the writer uses. Satisfied, advantage, eyes, all things we've read already in 10 through 12. Now 6, verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth. Yet his appetite is what? Not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity, hevel, striving after the wind. Again, he's saying, if your primary goal is consumption, you will never be satisfied. It will be this endless pursuit. There will always be a newer fitness watch, there will always be a bigger house, there will always be, and, and no knock on those of you wearing fitness watches, I'm just saying, if, if your life is about having the biggest and the best, there's always going to be another model. As soon as you buy that one, there will be something that will come out, and, and, and society, culture, the advertising industry will say to you, you need that one now, because yours is cheap, right? It's nothing, it's, it's worthless now, because this one's better. And, and that's what he's trying to say here is there's always going to be something more because you've got what he calls in verse 9, wandering eyes. You're constantly, instead of, instead of focusing on what I have, on the family God has given me and the home God has given me and the job God has given me, instead of settling my eyes on these things that God has given me and giving thanks, my eyes are constantly over here and there and, and seeing what that person has and how that person's marriage looks and how that person's work is and how they, they seem to enjoy their job better than I do. And it's always this, there's something else. The grass is always greener sort of mentality. And that's what he's describing there in verse 9. There's always this level of discontent that will never be satisfied if the approach is, this is it, under the sun, and it's just about getting satisfied with my stuff and my relationships and my things. You'll, you'll never get there. There's this sort of unsatisfying, unrelenting quest for more. And that's why he dismisses the advantage of being rich and wise. He says, you know, if that's, you can be rich and wise and still ultimately be worse off than a fool who is content because you're still striving and striving. If you can't rein in your personal desires, if your appetite isn't satisfied with what you have, then what leads you to believe that you'll be satisfied with just one more thing? What leads you to believe that this purchase or marrying this person, or whatever it might be, that, that this will finally do it and satisfy you. So that's, that's sort of the bottom rung of that, that chiasm you have there in your notes, moving us up to the main point. These first two sections, again, no ultimate satisfaction in accumulating riches under the sun, no advantage in that. So go back to chapter 5. We move up to the next step, chapter 5, verse 13. And here comes the term that he'll use in both parallels, this grievous evil term. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. 
And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so he shall go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and hunger. Occasionally, we've seen the writer in Ecclesiastes do this where he says, take this guy, for instance, and sort of gives us this kind of real-life example that we can imagine. He says, look at this guy. This guy is successful. He has done well. He is putting money away. He has a son for whom he seems to be building an inheritance for that son. He is on track in life. However, it says he is a hoarder. Riches were kept, verse 13, by their owner to his hurt. It is the idea that this is the guy who gets ulcers because of worry, because of his stuff and his work. It's this, not only is there the constant quest for more, but there is the internal churning of he's trying to just keep all this stuff for himself and hoard it to himself, and it just becomes stressful to the point that it says it's to his hurt. It's, it, it's to the point that, that he is just getting sick over this. But then, to make matters worse, verse 14, those riches were lost in a bad venture. At some point in life, and apparently later in life, after he's accumulated all this and stores this all up, he puts it all into this surefire business deal that is now going to take and multiply his money and give him even more to provide security because he thinks he's the provider of security. And, and so he puts it all into that, and it fails, and he loses everything. And the teacher calls this a grievous evil. That word for grievous also has the idea of sick. He says, this is, this is just sickness. This is a guy who has spent his life working to hoard it up for himself so that he can eventually give it to his son, keep it in the family, provide security, show him that he did his job and, and he's, he's been the, the, the wealthy provider and he's taking care of everything. Again, remember, there's nothing wrong with responsible work and providing for your family. It is this under the sun mentality that says, I have to do all this. This is all resting on me to gather this, hoard it, and then pass it on down and suddenly it is all gone. And in the end, he says he's going to die with just as many possessions as he was born with, which means nothing. This guy failed at his one ultimate goal in life, which was to accumulate as much stuff as possible to pass down an inheritance to his son, to say, look, see what all I've done for you? Here it is. I've, I've accomplished this. Some attempt at sort of man-made security. Presumably, the point of the business venture was to make more, to make even more sure that he had enough and it all collapses. And so the imagery there at the end is, is really saddening that verse 17, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Guy was this giant of a man in worldly terms, in terms of success, and now we find him and he's sitting in a dark room eating some meager portion of food just burning with anger and depression. How did this happen? How could I have lost everything? How can I be at this place? His life had revolved around creating security for his family, and now he's failed. So we have this guy sitting in the room in darkness. Chapter 6, verse 1, this is the other side of the parallel. And again, we're going to see a grievous evil. 
Chapter 6, verse 1, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. Mm. we are going to get to joy. Be encouraged. This is not the end of it. Because you read this, and this is just another dark picture, isn't it? Another guy who has been a success on so many levels because it says that he has riches and honor. And in fact, he goes on with this description. There's this reference to a hundred children, which presumably is exaggeration for effect. But then again, in Solomon's case, we don't know for sure. Nonetheless, the, the point is that in a culture where having children was a sign of blessing. The, the point of the, the message here is that this guy is so blessed. This guy has possessions, just he, he, endless amount of possessions. He has blessing in terms of children. He's got it all. And yet, the description here is he can't enjoy it. He's got everything that you seemingly could ask for, And yet the problem is that what's called a grievous evil, the sick and twisted part really is that he's sitting there looking at all this stuff and he is not the least bit happy. It's just not doing it for him. It's not satisfying him. And and, and you can imagine the people who are looking at him wondering, how can someone with this much be this unhappy about life? Well, as we're going to see back when we get back to chapter 5, he didn't know God. He didn't know where it came from. He didn't give thanks for any of it. And therefore, it was not something that God gave him the ability to enjoy. So he sits staring at all this with sort of this grim stare on his face thinking, all right, so I got all this, but it still feels like hevel. It still feels like nothingness in the end. There's still unrest in his soul. This guy could post the best portfolio of pictures of it on Instagram, right? This guy could show you all his stuff. He could show you all his kids, and they're well-dressed, and they're, they're happy, and they're playing on the new toys that he's bought them. And he could take pictures of the elaborate meals that are put out at his table. And he could show you all this stuff, but if you could see him, and if it was just him giving a selfie, it'd be sort of this transparently unhappy smile. There'd still be something beneath it that his friends and family would look and, and just kind of shake their heads and go, what is wrong with him? He's got everything. Why does he look like this? Why can't he smile at this? Why can't he be genuinely happy? Why can't he just enjoy life and all that he has? So there's the second rung. Two embittered men, completely disillusioned with life. One had it and lost it. The other has it and doesn't get it. All all pointing to the fact that material riches come with no guarantee of security and no promise of joy. You can get them, but they don't necessarily do anything for peace in your heart or joy in your soul. They simply surround you with stuff. One had it, hoarded it, lost it. One never had enough, at least as far as it seemed. And they are looking and and frustrated. 
The, the, the second guy is really the, the epitome of sort of the hashtag blessed life, right? Yet he is so utterly joyless. It just doesn't make sense. God, that last guy, in fact, the description there at the, the very end of that passage in 6, um, what is it, verse, uh, I'm just trying to find where I was again, um, verse 6, yeah, 6-6, six, six. he could live a thousand years twice over and yet enjoy no good. God could say to this guy, I'll let you do this for a thousand years and then I'll let you do it for a thousand years more, and this guy's response is essentially, why? <laughs> why bother? I haven't been happy now. What's going to make me any happier hanging around here any longer? Still doesn't satisfy. So let's move to the the center of this. Verse 18 of chapter 5. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is the peak. This is where the, the, the writer is trying to shine the spotlight and say, the stuff leading up to this and the stuff going away from this are just terrible pictures of life under the sun. Here's where you want to be. Here is where sort of the climax is. And it's interesting, the picture in verse 18 is not all that thrilling. It's of essentially a person who works long hours and has a short life. You know, that's kind of the description there in 518. It's that enjoy it. You're going to toil under the sun. You've got just a few days of life, and that is your lot. He's talking about the average middle-class guy right here, where most of you and I live. It's just saying, you know what? We work. We pay the bills, we eat, we drink, and so that's the one end of the spectrum. And then verse 19, he says, and then everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power. And so he's covering both ends of the spectrum here in the whole gamut. And, and his point of the whole section is, that regardless of which end you're at, it does, the circumstances don't matter. What matters is your response to them and whether or not you are looking above the sun to see God as the giver of those circumstances. This, this is the first point in this passage now where God suddenly is brought in. He uses him in each one of these verses when he says, it's God who has given you those few days of your life. The wealth and the possessions, God has given you those. And, and his, his point is, I don't care wh- where you're coming from, whether you're unhappy because you don't have enough or whether you think you've got all this and you don't know what to do with it, ultimately he said, where you are, Thank God for that place in life. Thank God for where he's put you, for what he's provided for you. Be content there because God has graciously put you there. God is providing for you. He knows your needs. God is the one who gives food and drink. God is the one who gives work. God is the one who gives possessions and wealth. And ultimately, he concludes it by saying God is the one who gives the power to enjoy these things. The the point that he's trying to get us to is those are the truths, okay? So God is the giver of life and food and drink and work and possessions. God is the giver of all these things. How do we respond? Do we believe that? Do we revel in that? Do we find joy in that? Are we content there? 
Are we able to recite what Jesus taught us, give us this day our daily bread, and really mean it that I'm content with enough provisions for today? I may not have enough to live an abundant, wealthy life beyond this, but can I still be content there? Because that's really where he's taking us, in that it, it sounds good in theory, but do we really believe it? That if God is the provider and God knows all of my needs, then his daily provision and his gracious work in my life is sufficient. His grace is really enough. It's worth noting from verse 19 that there, there's not a call here to a vow of poverty. The teacher even acknowledges that wealth and possessions and power come from God. But the point again is, do I thank him? Do I acknowledge that this is not because I am so superior at my business and I am so individually wise and great and cunning and skillful, but that this is, this is a gift, that what I have is given to me by God, and in that is joy. Do I find joy in knowing God has provided, living contented within those means, sharing with others? Do I find joy in that, or am I like the, the hoarder? I can't really share because I'm, I'm building up security. I'm trying to protect myself. In the day when an enemy army comes, you all will be banging on my door hungry, but I will have enough for me and my family because I was the smart one and I provided. And he loses it all and there he sits in that dark room. Do we rest in the fact that God has provided sufficiently for us? Philip Ryken, this is kind of a long quote, but I think it's a helpful one just in seeing this passage. The world that God created is full of many rich gifts, but the power to enjoy them does not lie in the gifts themselves. This is why it is always useless to worship the gifts instead of the creator. The ability to enjoy wealth or food or friendship or work or sex or any other good gift comes only from God. Satisfaction, so to speak, is sold separately. It goes back to that we can have so much and still not have joy in it because we don't see the giver. We don't look above the sun. We don't have the eternal perspective that says, this is all wonderful, and I'm thankful that God has given it, but if God chose, chose to take it all away tomorrow, I would still praise him. I would still thank him if the story went much like Job. And God had provided all these blessings, and then they were gone. I could still rest in his kindness and his provision. It is really how we, we look at our lot in life. No one's circumstances are changed in this passage. The hardworking laborer is still there. The wealthy person is still there. It's not the circumstances. It's joy that ultimately comes from constantly looking above the sun and saying, God, you are the giver of these things. So I, I'm just a steward of this. If you've happened to give me more than my neighbor, I don't know why. I don't deserve it. Just help me be wise with it. Help me to share it. Help me to use it for, for your glory and be thankful for it. And that's why he says at the end of that, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. He's trying to show us the picture, and you, you need both sides of that poem to, to see that. There's either the side that is thoroughly occupied with life and its hurts and its losses and, and all of the problems and all of the money and all of the bills. There's a mind that's occupied with those things or there is a heart that is occupied with joy. And the difference ultimately is the heart that's occupied with joy says, this is all from God. 
I came into this life with nothing. He has chosen to bless me in this way. I'm going to rest in his provision so that when I leave this life, regardless of how or when I leave, I will stand before him above the sun and leave all this behind. All I need to do for now is just be thankful and be a good steward of it and be thankful for it. And that's why he says there's, it, the, the one who is thankful, who sees this as a gift from God, isn't spending all his time going, oh, I wish I had more, I need more, I'm, 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 I'm just, you know, this doesn't work, and this relationship doesn't work, and this job doesn't work. That's the discontent person. And he says the person that keeps going back to the mentality that this is a gift from God, he will not much remember the days of his life. In other words, he's not going to be preoccupied by all of the earthly circumstances as he will having joy at thanking God. We left behind these two men who are disillusioned, embittered, angry. They had staked everything on creating their own security and satisfaction, and it so consumed them that they had no joy whatsoever. If anything, they were thoroughly disappointed with life. So how about us? How often are you thankful for God's provision? How often are you, when you're commuting on Monday morning, thankful that you have a job to go to? When you open up your meager lunch at work while your coworkers are going out to some fancy restaurant, how often are you, thank you, Lord. Thank you for providing this. When you make that comparison between you and someone else who seems to be better off, how often do you just say, Lord, thank you. Thank you that you've put me in this place. Thank you that you know what, what I need let me be content here. We can easily get caught up in these quests in our hearts for elusive idols that we think will make life happy. And, and the message here again and again is they don't. If we go through life saying, if I could have just married that person, if I could have just lived in this place, if I could have just gotten that job, if I could have, if, if, if. The message in Ecclesiastes is those are both sides. In the middle is a contentment that says what I have is a gift from God. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He says, In the end, just be content. You don't need to love money. Just be content. If you have Jesus Christ, you have a sure anchor for your soul that will hold you and protect you and care for you amidst any storm that life sends. You can, you can take part in a business venture that, that ends up failing and not have to go sit down in a dark room and mourn for the rest of your days. You can rest. That profoundly simple picture of an abiding anchor who will never leave us or forsake us, who will always protect us and care for us. He is our helper and defender. And that's why Jesus Christ taught us to not lay up for ourselves treasures on where? Earth, just making sure you're still with me. Where, raw, where rust comes in and, and, and moths and, and dust and all that stuff corrupts and destroys. Instead, we are to lay up for ourselves treasures where? In heaven, right. Treasures that will last because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's where we find that contentment. Do we find it in a glorious Savior who himself left the majesty of heaven? We, we have no clue of what majesty and honor and power is in, in comparison to Jesus Christ who stripped himself of all of that 
in order to come and be a man and to suffer and die in our place so that he might, by grace, give to us the ability to one day be in his presence, to be above the sun in that glorious kingdom and enjoy that. That's what we live and long for. If we have nice things on this earth, thank you, Lord, for entrusting those to me. I, I don't know why, but you've chosen to put them in my hands. But that's just for now. We're living for when we stand in his presence and for treasure that lasts for eternity. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the writer in Ecclesiastes being so aware of the temptations in our lives, the temptations to feel like we've been shorted in some way, to play the comparison game that we do so easily, to wonder how maybe circumstances, if they were different, if things would have been better. Lord, I, I, I'm confident, even as we pray this morning, that there are people here this morning who are in circumstances that are difficult, that are maybe even are, are just hurting right now. Lord, I pray that you would minister to their very soul just a tremendous sense of, of peace and contentment that even though the circumstances are not easy, that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is an anchor for the soul, that you are the one who holds and protects. You are the reason, amidst the chaos of our world, that the psalmist can say, let the nations be glad. Help us to find confidence and rest in you, trusting in you, knowing that your provision is, is in full awareness of our needs. Help us to rely on that, to find hope and peace and joy. Lord, confront us, convict us when we even show hints of looking like these individuals in Ecclesiastes who were so distraught about circumstances because they felt like they'd been cheated or robbed or didn't have what they thought they should have. Only by your work and your spirit in us, we pray, would you enable us to live contentedly, that people would see people who are resting in you, trusting in you, even when the circumstances don't seem all that fabulous. Thank you for joy. Thank you for the joy to enjoy food and drink and fellowship in your grace. Help us to do that this day and to be thankful. In Jesus' name we pray.